Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. In, in context of what we're looking at tonight in, in light of faith, um, and it's a, there's a faith story on the tail end of the story. Um, but my dad, when he was 14 years old, lost his mother and father within months of each other and was forced to, uh, really having no other family to turn to, was forced to, to take his, his younger brother and sister to an orphanage. Went back to his home church, and they took up enough money for train fare um, to him or, or for them to, to Franklin for one way. Uh, and so he gets them on a train, takes them down to Franklin, gets, gets them both in an orphanage, hitchhikes back to Knoxville, um, and this was before interstate, so two-lane roads, hitchhiking back to Knoxville, and gets back here having nothing to turn to or no one really to turn to as a 14-year-old boy, two older brothers overseas in the war, uh, and he here alone. He went uh, to friends in the church and knocked on their door to see if he could sleep on their porch at night in their porch swing or wherever they would have some cover to where he could sleep out of the rain and out of the weather, asking for work. Whatever, wherever he could get day work and those kinds of things. And I, I probably about three or four years before he died, <clears throat> I recounted this story with him. And, and, I, and I asked him a, uh, some faith questions associated with that. I said, um, did you ever get mad at the Lord, you know, in that, in that whole time of, you know, dropping your brother and sister off and them undoubtedly wailing, don't leave me here, you know, kind of thing, and heading back, you know, thumbing back to Knoxville, trying to make it back to nothing, nothing to go back to, you know, thumbing your way back to nothing. Did you ever wonder where God was? Did you ever get mad at him? Did you ever get frustrated? And he said, son, I didn't have time to get frustrated. He said, and he, he I wrote this down because I, I, I wanted to remember it really my whole life. And I, I may not have written it down verbatim, but he said something in the essence of what I needed was far more important than what I felt. And I thought, wow. Um, we, we, we can learn great lessons of faith if we get our eyes off of what we feel and onto what God's up to, onto what he's doing. And so his story in that was, I didn't have time to be mad at God. I didn't have time to be, you know, I, was, I didn't have anything to eat. I didn't have a place to sleep. So my, my, my concern, my energies, all of my mental energies and physical energies were on feeding myself and, and keeping myself out of the rain and everything else. The end of the story is he goes on to find work, um, with a, with a fellow and who lets him stay in their barn and and that ends up being a kind of a, a segue into the grocery business where he spent most of his life. But um, uh, as I asked, as, as we recounted that story, I, I was just you know if anybody's got or I felt like if anybody had a chance to be mad at God, it's here I am a 14 year old kid I'm dropping my kids off or my brother and sister off at an orphanage I got nothing uh, you know and he he totally recounted the story with me and to, to kind of regurgitate this and. And he has said what I've shared with you before, too, on occasion. That is, when you figure out God's all you got, you understand he's all you need. Until you realize he's all you got, you think I can do okay. Maybe with his help here, if he helps me a little bit here and he helps me a little bit there, I can do okay because I can fill in all the gaps of the rest. But until you've got, <laughs> there's no gaps to fill in. <laughs> until you realize he's all I've got. I've got nothing. 
you, you'd really discover he's all you need. And so as we had this conversation about faith, I, I was recounting this with him, and, and I said, did that, did that build your faith or diminish it? And he said, what do you think? You know, I'm standing before you because he's all I had, and he's the only one I had to depend on. And when I'm in those situations of life where, you know, when you're, when you're in, in, in life and death situations and you're, you're a 14-year-old guardian trying to, trying to keep kids safe on a train and trying to get them off someplace else and, and you're forced at 14 to become a grown-up, I, I realized I've got to have God. I mean, I've got to have him. I've got nothing without him. So he says it, it built my faith tremendously. He said, Did I, was, I, was I afraid from time to time after that? Absolutely. And... I said, but you, you never were mad or upset or angry. He said, no, I didn't have time to be. I didn't have time for that. And, boy, what a great lesson we could learn from. I don't have time for anger with God. I don't have time for, for those kind. I don't have time to feel toward him those ways. Why? Because I'm pursuing what I need. And once I start to pursue what I need, I, I realize I don't have time for, for anger. I don't have time for fear. I don't have time for, for those kinds of things. And And he... He put feet to his faith. In the, that's all he knew to do. That's all he had to do. He put feet to his faith. And I thought about that story this, this week as I was uh, studying for this message because that's the very thing that, that this passage in, in, in Mark 11 talks about. That is putting it, getting beyond passivity in our faith and putting feet to the things we say we believe. Putting feet to the concepts that we've been taught all our life that maybe whether we grew up in church or whether we didn't, but the concepts we've been taught all our life that God a relationship with him matters. A relationship with him can change our life, can change our destiny, can change our outlook, can change our attitudes. And it can, but we've got to move on it. And that's the very thing this, this text is about. Let's read it before we begin uh, tonight. Mark chapter 11, and uh, we'll read down through verse 26. So you can see this kind of unfold. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a coat, colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since he was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, 
The fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I say to you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, it will be done for you. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, three great lessons of faith here in this text. One is in relation to obedience. The other one is is in relation to confrontation. And the final is in relation to belief. These principles of obedient faith take us, first of all, ahead of where we are. Takes us ahead of where we are. Look in verse 2. He says... In verse 2, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a coat there, which has never been written. Um, I think God wants us in our faith to take us, and he, he was building the faith of these disciples here in this instance, to take us to a new place, to take us to a place we've never seen before, to take us to a place ahead, spiritually at least, of where we are today. Um, if not, why save us? If not, why redeem us? And why leave us here? after redemption, after salvation, if he doesn't have a plan ahead for us. He's constantly wanting our faith to move into a deeper place, to move into a place ahead of us. And it's hard to predict the results of that, isn't it? The the great fear many of us have most of the time is in the unknown. And I want you to notice here in verses 2 and 3 with what incredible detail he gives them. Um, Just as you enter it, enter town, go to the town ahead of you, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? They'll say, the Lord needs it, and we'll be back shortly. Filled in all the cracks for them. He didn't just say, which most of us would, you go find me some transportation. Come back. <laughs> I mean, that's usually how I would leave it with folks. If I had folks that were, were designed to help me, won't you find me some transportation? Get back. And he didn't do that. He, he, he says, go, to, go, to, go on to the, to the town ahead of you. That's where we're heading. And you need to realize that they were slightly, if not greatly, intimidated by Jerusalem. Because these were Galileans who grew up in the Galilean area and fishermen and fished in the, in the sea and in, in the lakes and stuff around, surrounding that region. And Jerusalem was the big city. It was like going to New York. It would be like today, you and I approaching, or, or, or Jesus approaching with 12 disciples and either on foot or, or some other way by, by way of New York and getting close to New York and saying, okay, why don't a couple of you run ahead to Times Square? And at Times Square, you're going to find a 15-passenger van right there sitting in front of Times Square. Just get in it. The keys will be in it already. Just grab the keys, get in it. If anybody asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and bring it to me. Well, can you imagine doing that today? I mean, there'd be 50, first of all, in Times Square, there'd be 30 cops, you know, around just like, just like this, thinking you were a terrorist in a 15-passenger van. But you, you, you can imagine their mindset then, heading to the big city to steal a colt for Jesus. And he says, we're just barring it. Tell them we're going to bring it back. If anybody says anything to you, we're going to bring it back. But in their mind, they don't know whose colt it is. They don't know where it's going to come from. He just said, he said, go in. You find the colt. So they go into the town. You can imagine their intimidation. A couple of them walking into town. There's the colt tied there. Well, the, colt's, the colt part's true. Let's go up and untie it. And, and so they go up and untie it. And some, as you see the story, somebody, hey, what are you doing with that colt? Well, the Lord said he needed it. We're going to bring it back. Okay. Well, that part's true too. So they're so they're, they're seeing as their faith is, as feet's put on their faith, that they start to grow and think, realize, what do you, he's filled in all the cracks for us. There's nothing left for us to see, nothing left for us to fear. And isn't that true of us? Our greatest fear in our faith is because we don't know all the details. Isn't that true? It is 90% of the time. We don't know where, we don't know what's, you know where the details are found? 
He fills in the cracks for us with this book. And the cracks of this book will help us put feet to our faith. Because it fills in all the details of what God is expecting, what he is, yea, demanding out of us for our faith to grow. But we've got, we've got the step foot and step foot and step foot based on what he's shown us in his word that he can be depended on. Now, the second thing is this. Not only does obedient faith take us ahead of where we are, it takes us to greater understanding. Look at verse 5. Some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered just as Jesus had told them to. And you know the rest of the story. The bystanders there weren't defending their property, but they were defending their community. They were defending somebody that they didn't know, taking something that wasn't theirs, but they were community-minded people, much like a neighborhood watch program probably would be today. But their answer totally suffices to these folks. Do you notice that? They didn't know them. They didn't, it wasn't their cult. But the answer these disciples give them totally suffices in saying, the Lord needs it. Now, as you and I know the Lord, the term Lord, and certainly in the New Testament and throughout Scripture, uh, Lord is, is the, the synonymous word for Lord in the Old Testament is Yahweh. And in the New Testament, it's Master, Lord, Ruler, King, uh, Authority. And so that word, using that word to them, gave them the sense of a person in authority wants it, needs it, will use it, and bring it back. And that was totally good enough for them. How he had planted a seed already to go ahead of the disciples to plant a seed in these folks' minds to where when you mentioned it, the Lord needs it, that's going to be good enough. They're not going to say, what Lord? Who's Lord? What? You didn't see any of that, did you? He had already planted in their mind, gone, gone ahead of them to prepare the way for them. That's great truth for us. And when he gives us a step of faith, he will have gone ahead of us to prepare the step of faith so that it's easier for us to live, easier for us to navigate. Um, I think these disciples, they're following him, gives us an example of what God expects from us. And that's this, unquestioning obedience. And isn't that hard? As I say, it's harder when we don't know the details. And he fills in the details from it, for us from his word. But that sense of unquestioning obedience is what he expects of us. That's what he told the disciples. Go and do this. Here's all the details. And just go do it. You know what they did? They just went and did it. Were they afraid? Probably. Probably as afraid as a 14-year-old kid thumbing his way back to a, to a town with nothing to go to. They were, they were probably full of fear. But the further they went, the greater their trust grew. Because when they saw the cult, ha, what he said was true when they got to town. When they heard the question, huh, he already told us about the question. And so every step they took, it took them into a deeper place of God's already prepared the way for us. He's already ahead of us. He's already here. We can trust what he says. Great lessons for them to learn in faith. Great lessons for us to learn about obedience. Secondly, is this idea of confrontational faith. It first of all takes us to a place of challenge. Look at 15 and 16. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, when you, as he did, when you start to threaten someone's livelihood, you're going to get their attention in a, in a significant way, especially a man, but probably even a woman. When you start to threaten their livelihood, well, the bristles are going to come out, aren't they? And you're, going to, you're going to find out whether, whether somebody's real serious about protecting their turf or not. And that's exactly the, 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 the very situation that he goes into here with these guys. Now, what I want you to see, too, a couple of things here out of these, these verses is, is that the term money changers in the Scripture likely had to do with this. Uh, most, of the, most of the regions around Galilee, as did, as did Jerusalem, had their own currency. Now, these were under Roman rule, so Roman currency applied in every situation, but every, every locale, every province... Most of them, not all of them, but most of them had their own currency. Jerusalem did as well. And so as you would bring Roman currency or, or 
Nazareth currency. I don't know if Nazareth had their own currency or not. But as you, as you would bring currency from another region to do business in Jerusalem, you would get that currency like you would now if you went into Canada or, or Nicaragua or someplace else to get that currency translated into their own, their own currency so you could do business there. So what was happening here as, was that as the money changer's table was being thrown over, was this sense of thievery that was going on. Because if you brought in $10 worth of Roman money, they'd give you $7.50 worth back of Jewish money. They were taking it right out of the pocket and sticking it in their own. And that infuri- the, the thievery infuriated him. Not only did the thievery infuriate him, he says that he turned over the tables of, the, uh, of those selling doves. Now you understand that doves were brought into the temple as a sacrifice, as a sacrificial offering. It, it's, it's, and that infuriated him as it should. It would be very much like, well, for uh, several weeks ago, we were collecting food here, or Kids Point was collecting food to, to, to take the, to the local fish pantry for free, folks on free and reduced lunch who can get uh, food there throughout the summer months. Well, it'd be like you guys bringing in food for us to take to them, and then a few of us in the church deciding, you know, hey, there's some profit to be made in this food. Let's grab these groceries, set up a stand, and we'll start selling the food back out that you've brought in to give to somebody else who's in need. Very same thing of what was happening here with these doves. Sacrificial gifts brought in as sacrificial offerings were taken back and, and de-sanctified, if you will, and sold back to the public for profit. That infuriated him. The sense of thievery going on in the temple infuriated him to the extent that, and this is, this is one, of the, one of the fewer times in Scripture that you'll find him, his, his tone of, sometimes you'll, you'll see Jesus in Scripture using humor. Other times you'll see him really driving home a point. Other times you'd just see him in calm uh, mode teaching the people. I, I really believe there was raised voice here going on in what was going on. And I really believe that there was, there was some indignant anger here in, in the fact that he confronted something that he knew to be wrong and that those around knew to be wrong. In fact, look at how he does this um, with, uh, in verse 15 and 16. Well, actually, in verse, uh, in verse 18, you, uh, last line of verse 17, you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 18, the chief priests and teachers heard this. In essence, he's looking at those, under, overturning the, 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 the money changers' temples, the dove sellers' temp, the, or tables, and all this kind of thing. And those religious leaders, the pastors, were standing around watching all this. You see the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he says, that's the Pharisees. These folks are standing around in the temple watching all this. Now, Jesus cared little about what these minions who were selling things' opinion was. He cared deeply that the teachers and the pastors got it, got the point. Because I think he looks at them... Uh, I think his eyes and probably his hands and his fingers and everything else says, you've made this a den. He turns straight to the pastors and teaches, you've made this a den of robbers. This, was, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've allowed this in here. You've sanctioned it. You've okayed it. This has your blessing. You've made it a den of robbers. Because the reason I think he points at them, look, look what happens in verse, uh, uh, in verse 18. Uh, <laughs> as soon as they heard this, they go and begin looking for a way to kill him. Um, he's embarrassed him. He's embarrassed him in front of their peers. He's embarrassed him in front of the, the folks at the temple. And that takes us to this second point, and that is it takes us, confrontational faith takes us to a place of nonconformity. Um, Jesus overturned more than temples. I mean, overturned more than tables in the temple. He overturned the status quo, and they didn't like it, and they weren't comfortable with it. And you'll see there in verse, in verse 18, they start looking for a way to kill him, start looking for a way to, to put him to death. Um, as I say, he's saying to them... <clears throat> Outsiders haven't corrupted this place. It's not these money changers. It's not the dove sellers. Outsiders haven't come in here and done this. You insiders have corrupted this place from the inside out. Great lesson for you and I. Great lesson for you and I in this is that 
He said, watch, watch your life, watch your church, watch your faith, watch your families, watch your relationships from the inside out. Because I'm going to tell you, what's going on outside our culture will not corrupt your, your faith. What's going on inside, what Satan's doing to you, the lies he's telling you, the things he's believing, and how you're allowing yourself to be self-corrupted, from the in, whether it's your family, your church, your, from the inside out is where real corruption takes place. And I, I think it's a great lesson for you and I to say, because, and justifiably so, you and I look at our culture, we look at the news, we look at, look at the ways that, we're, that we as believers are marginalized in our culture today, and we think that the enemy is our culture. No, the enemy is the enemy. He's using our culture many times, but the enemy is the enemy. And if he can, he would rather come inside than outside. Because we, we have defense mechanisms for the outside, don't we? But for the inside, man, it's, how do you defend that? How do you defend my own heart and my own spirit being, being deluded into thinking that this is somehow God's fault in all of this? And he's saying, watch that inside-out corruption. That's the worst kind. And that's why he points to these, these, these teachers over saying, oh, you, you're the one allowing this. You're allowing this place to be corrupted from the inside out. You've sanctioned this. You've, you've okayed this. And the lesson in that is, don't allow that in your life. Don't allow the, the enemy to creep in and think, just a little of this is okay. Just a little thievery over here with the money change, and that's okay, because we'll, we'll throw it back in the temple for the temple use. Or selling just a few doves that's brought in for sacrifice, okay, just maybe some of the lame ones, some of the dirty ones. Let's, and then it becomes from a few into, let's bring the good ones in, because we're making some good profit here. And it starts, in, that's how the enemy works with us, isn't it? He works with us incrementally, step after step after step. And it's, it's, it's innocent at first. Yet over time, we look back on what he's done and what he's doing and think, this is not the person. I, look, I don't look like the person God's designed for me to be. That kind of confrontational faith um, is, I, I think, what God's calling us to. And he, he, he uses this, this prophecy here from Jeremiah seven eleven in, uh, in verse 17. You've made it a den of robbers. They knew the prophecy, and he takes their own prophecy and throws it back in their face to say, you always perceived that this prophecy that the den of robbers was somebody else, but the den of robbers is you. You've robbing, you're, you're robbing the own kingdom that you're trying to, trying to build. Um, it was harsh confrontation. Does confrontation always have to be harsh? No, it doesn't. In fact, it needs to be loving, and it needs to be caring, but it needs to have some conviction to it. And unless you and I have some sense of conviction that what we're doing is right, and what we're doing has been, first of all, led of God, and that what we're doing is right, whether it's a stand taken uh, socially or a stand taken relationally or a stand taken financially or regardless of the, of the arena, if we're convinced that the Holy Spirit has got us to that place, then we need to have a sense of conviction, conviction about where we stand and how we stand. Does it, as I say, does it always need to be harsh? No, it doesn't. And... This verse doesn't justify a harsh confrontation all the time. Is that what this situation needed? Yes, it did. Or he wouldn't have done it that way. And are those situations needed in life from time to time? Probably are. But confrontation is often difficult, but doesn't have to always be harsh. I think that's a great lesson for us to learn. Not only is our faith obedient and confrontational, but this is the best part. Our faith is a, or should be a believing faith, and it, it should take us to a place uh, bigger than us. Look at verse 23. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say will happen, it'll be done for you. The mountains in our lives, he's saying here in essence, are nothing to them. Was he talking about a physical mountain? Maybe some of the 12 perceived that. Um, was he talking about figurative mountains in our lives? I think 100% of the time, yes, that's true. And I think that's what he would have us see here today, is that is, 
Does he want us to drive out to House Mountain or Sharps Ridge and stand out there and, okay, you be thrown into the sea? Probably not. Can he do that? Yes, he can. What I think, what I think he's speaking to here in this scripture, though, is where you and I live day to day. It's not making a trip to some mountain range. But where you and I live day to day is allowing the mountains in our lives to become who they are, to become as big as they are, to become as significant as they are. And, and I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know where, if, if, if it looks like failure. I don't know if it looks like anger. I don't know if it looks like, I don't know what that looks like for you. If it looks like divorce, if it looks like some sense of financial disaster that you've gone through. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what's a mountain to you. But what I know he's saying here is that that mountain can be thrown into the sea regardless of how big it looks to you. Regardless of how significant you've allowed it to become in your life, it can be done away with. Why? Because if you'll believe, I've got the faith to remove it. If you'll believe that I've got the faith to remove it, it can be gone. What an incredible thing. Um, now, here, here's something else that I want you to see too, is that he uses in this verse, in verse, uh, in verse 23, um, go throw yourself into the sea, and do not doubt, it'll be done for you. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it. What's the vehicle to God showing up in incredible faith ways in our life? It's prayer. Now, what our culture, and, and in fact, even what Christianity would have you believe, is that God shows up in big ways when you give someone a platform and a microphone. And a platform and a microphone will cause this to come out, and this to come out, and this to be healed, and that to be done. And God's miracles all show up if you give somebody a platform and a suit and a microphone. And what he's saying here is that the vehicle to incredible, the vehicle to your experiencing faith and seeing me respond to your faith in an incredible and miraculous way is, is not all the glitz. It's prayer. It's something nobody ever sees but me and you. Something nobody ever experiences but me and you. That's the vehicle to supernatural things on behalf of God. He's saying it's not about what is seen, not about what is proclaimed. God, show up and take sharp shreds into the... No. He said, the vehicle is prayer. And I will do some incredible things through your prayer life if you pray believing that I can do it. That's the key. Now, not only does it take us to a place bigger than us, but verse 25 talks about this. It takes us to a place of forgiveness. Look at what he says. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um... And here's the real harsh truth in this verse, is that our mountains will stay mountains until we learn to forgive. I don't know what it is that's a mountain to you, as I said earlier, and it's probably going to be different for every person in this room, but our mountains will stay mountains until we learn to forgive. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes if we've been hurt, and, and here's what's, what I've found to be true, sometimes it's harder to forgive ourselves than it is for, to forgive the person who's hurt us, isn't it? Why is it so hard? It's because the enemy wants to keep us confined. The enemy wants to keep us defeated and quarantined spiritually away from any sense of effectiveness whatsoever. How does he do that? Well, he allows us to forgive the person who's hurt us. But because of this encounter, and because of our hurt, and because maybe of our anger in response to our hurt, or because of how we handle the situation, he says to us, you know, God still loves you, and you're still going to heaven. You need to sit over here on the shelf, because God, you're too dirty for God to use you. You've gone too far for God to use. You've, and he, he feeds us that over and over and over and over, those same lines. And we believe him. And so it becomes harder to forgive ourselves of the things, of the wrongs that have been done than it does someone else oftentimes. But what he's saying here is the vehicle to your mountains being moved is your forgiveness, your willingness to forgive others. 
Because he says, if you're not willing to forgive them, don't expect my forgiveness to you. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? You see the power that forgiveness has? He knows that. He knows the power of his forgiveness in your life. And he knows the power of your forgiveness to someone else. He knows the power that unleashes. That's why he's painting with such a stark black and white picture here. He's saying, unless you forgive, I won't forgive you. But as you forgive, I forgive you. What's, what's the great lesson there? And the, the lesson is, is that we understand some great things about faith by how we forgive. We understand that the mountains aren't near as big the more we forgive. Forgivers, real forgivers, not only receive forgiveness, as I said just a moment ago, but they understand it. They understand its power. They understand what God can do with it. Um, they understand the cancer. Real forgivers understand the cancer of forgiveness and, says, and make a choice that says, I'm not allowing to live that way anymore. And tells the enemy, looks him in the eye and says, no, not anymore. Or at least not about this. You may attack me about something else over here, but not about this. I'm not living in bondage to this anymore. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive her. I'm going to forgive this situation. That I'm going to forgive. Not about this. Not anymore. And so the victory of that, the, the real forgivers understand its power, and they understand how to receive it as well as give it. Well, you know, Tim, this is all great and everything, but how does this apply to, to how do we, where we live? How does this apply to day-to-day life? Let me give you um, a couple of admonitions. First of all, <clears throat> how do we know if we're being obedient? How do we know if we're, if we're being godly confrontational? How do we know if, we're, if, we're, if our belief is as deep as it needs to be? And I would say that simply, one, step one, is starting to do something. Because as you see here, every one of these situations, there's activity involved. There's activity involved in these guys going to the city and grabbing the colt and bringing it back to him. There's activity involved in his confronting, by faith, these in the temple. And there's activity involved, by way of prayer, of our mountains being moved and forgiveness changing our future. So there's movement here involved. And so the more activity there is, the more we see God start to use our faith. The first step we take, God starts to honor. The second, the third, the fourth, God starts to honor. And he says, and some of you will discover this in, in James, some of you ladies, or some of you who may already be there. Uh, and James has a number of great truths, but one of the great truths of the book of James is that he says the faith without works is seemingly dead. It's non-existent. You show me faith without works, I will show you my faith by my works. My works will be evidence of my faith, not the other way around, not a package of works and a package of faith and I have enough faith if I have enough work. No, they're, they're, I, I've told you over and over, God didn't have these, this, this sense of scale. We do, and the enemy does, but God doesn't have this sense of scale. He has this sense of our works being the results of a faith that inside that's changed us. So he says, the more works you see, the more you'll understand, and the deeper your roots of faith will grow and go. Now, if we're here and, and, and we've, we've lived a sense of, uh, yeah, I believe God, and I know, I know God can change my life and can change my circumstances, but I don't know that I've ever really been to a place of actively pursuing my faith. What does that look like in a practical way? I'm going to give you a couple, two or three suggestions and we're done. If your faith has been largely passive, and you may have a story or two to tell, you may have a, a spiritual marker in your life of where, where you trusted God, but generally speaking, you're not on an active pursuit in, a, in, a, in your faith relationship with Him. And you don't have deeply uh, 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 ordained roots. I would encourage you to start simple. Start small. Uh, if you've never, if all you've ever known is a passive 
they start small. What does that look like? Well, <clears throat> as it relates to obedience, here are a couple of simple suggestions. Uh, as it relates to, to obedience, start with what you already know to be true. God, God teaches us, uh, well, in the Old Testament, that, a, that giving is a tithe. Giving is, is, is 10% in the Old Testament. He expounds on that in the New Testament to say that's the starting point, and, and we give as the Spirit gives us obedience to in the New Testament beyond uh, even 10%. But I want to encourage you, if that's, if that's a, just a real practical suggestion for you, is if that's a difficult hurdle for you to get to, start small. Start with 2% of your income. Start with 1%. Start somewhere. And then start to see what God does with your obedience and giving. Will he do some things financially in your life? Maybe. Will he do some things with, with the root system of faith? Absolutely. I can promise you that. Ten times out of ten. He will often do some things with your finances. That's up to him. That's not promised in Scripture, but that's often the way he works. But he will always, 100% of the time, do some things with our faith as we start to be obedient to him. Maybe it's Scripture for you. Maybe, maybe you say, I don't, I don't get it. You know, I can look at this passage, and I can read this chapter, and I just don't have a takeaway. And so I'm discouraged, and I don't have a regular quiet time. I don't have a regular time with him daily or weekly. Or, you know, I get it on Sunday, and, you know, and I, sometimes I'll put my Bible up, and, I, and I'll read it occasionally through the week. I would encourage you there as well. Start small. Start with a couple of verses a day. Start with a chapter a week. Don't overwhelm yourself. Don't sit down and read three chapters and, and want to take away 12 great spiritual nuggets. out of. Don't start that way because you, you'll get discouraged. The enemy's going to say, you're stupid. Why are you not getting this? You ought to be able, this is simple stuff. You ought to be able to understand this. And we start believing that. We can't get it. You know what? We can. <laughs> and he wants us to. He wants us to enlighten us to truth. We try and take on too much oftentimes to do that because we know God's word is the source of truth. So, man, let's dig in and read all we can. And sometimes if we've never been in the habit of that, there's more confusion in doing that than there is enlightenment. So start small. Start with just a little bit. As you, as you start to see a little bit and digest a little bit, well, that starts to make sense. <laughs> this verse starts to come alive a little bit. This, this chapter starts to come alive. You'll develop a greater hunger. And as the hunger grows, your faith deepens. As your faith deepens, the desire for his word grows. As the desire for his word grows, the application grows. And so you, you start to see this cycle in your life of spiritual growth, and you wonder where it ever come from. It came from starting small and then responding to the hunger of starting small. As it, as it relates to confrontation, many of you are not, do you know Jesus as your Savior today? If you were to die tonight, you know, many of you are, are not, you would not go knock on somebody's door and share your faith with them and, and evangelize door to door. Nothing wrong with that. At all, and, I, and I, I don't want to paint a negative picture of that at all here tonight. If that's who you are, <laughs> go for it. But many of you aren't. How do I start with that? How do I start to, to approach someone verbally or, or lovingly, confrontationally with my faith? Even a stranger or maybe somebody I work with. Here's a couple of suggestions, simple ways to start. I learned this from somebody else, but a great disarming phrase. How can I pray for you? It may be a server in a restaurant. It may be a teller in a bank, maybe somebody in a grocery store. How can I pray for you? I've never asked him about that question and gotten attacked or gotten, <coughs> never gotten any of that. You know why? Because everybody wants to be prayed for. <laughs> Nobody will turn down prayer, even if they're not a believer. I'm going to tell you, a, a, a pagan running from God as fast as they can will never turn down prayer. Well, I, you, know, you may get a, I don't know. You may get some of that, but you'll never get, how dare you ask me to, I don't think you'll ever get that. Why? It's disarming. And, and, and all of us, you're, you're, you're making yourself somewhat vulnerable and saying, how can I pray for you? 
Uh, that's, that's one suggestion. Another is, and I've, I've used this before in, as, as, as segues into spiritual conversation with people, and that is this. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. What? A story? What do you mean? Well, tell me the two or three most significant things that's happened in your life. And as you hear this story unfolding, they're starting to get comfortable with you telling you, telling, uh, you about themselves. And as you hear this story unfolding, if you don't hear anything spiritual going on in the context of the two or three most important things that's happened to them in their life, there's an open door. I'll tell you what I, I, I didn't hear in there. I heard, I heard the loss of this loved one really devastated you. And man, that's a, that's a tough... And you, you may not go into anything spiritual that first conversation, especially if it's somebody you have a relationship with and you see regularly at work or wherever else. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't knock that down. I wouldn't knock that door down the first time. But if they open up part of themselves to you and become vulnerable to you, man, what a great opportunity to have a follow-up conversation and say, well, I heard in you telling me your story the other day, you know, the, the loss or, or the going through a time of sickness or, or when, your child, when your kids were born and how cool that was and you were in the room and you got, you got to witness all of that. And, and it, isn't, isn't that an incredible thing where how life begins and, and you're witnessing a miracle in front of you and, and, and the things God does and, and, and how that would open up a door for you to be able to share your faith. But start small. Don't go, don't go knocking up on somebody's door with 15 verses and expecting their heart to be ready for truth. Sometimes it may be. And if the Spirit leads you to do that, by all means, do it. But you know what he, what he is leading us to do every day? is to penetrate conversations every day with our faith. Every day he's leading us to do that. For, and is that confrontational? Maybe. maybe. Maybe confrontation is a bad word for that. But asking someone how you can pray for them, asking them to tell you their story is a great and easy way into that. In this belief area, what's a simple, what's a simple a- action step there? Well, and this is totally between you and God, but I would start to find something you believe God wants to do in you or you believe God wants to do through you in the life of this church and you start praying about it privately. Don't tell anything, anybody anything else about it. You just start praying about it and start to see what God starts to do with your prayer of belief. Will he start to open a door relationally for you? Will he start to open a door at church for you? Will he start to open a door, whatever you've been praying about, whether it may be something in your marriage, something in, in, in parenting, whatever you're starting to pray about that you, you believe God is working in your heart about and you start to pray to him believing that I need to see some solution to this. I need some direction to this. As you start praying, believing, you'll start to see God start to work. That's what he said here in his word. The promise of praying, believing is that he grants what we want. So if we're praying to him, believing, we'll start to see God laying before us the very things we're praying to him about. And we'll start to see him open doors. Now, those may may seem rather simplistic to you, and they probably are. But here's the thing I would encourage you to do is, it really doesn't matter where you start. Just start. Start. I mean, take a step. Take a step of faith that you've not taken before in a relationship. Take a step you've not taken before financially. Take a step you've not taken before spiritually. Take a step you've not taken before in the context of church or someone. Take a step you've not taken before in faith by faith, and start to see God honor those steps of faith one small one at a time to start to deepen your root system and increase your sense of confidence in the fact that He's got it. He's got it, and He's got me. I have nothing to fear in the next step. I have nothing to fear in the step after that. I have nothing to fear in anything. Why? Because he's already ahead of me. He already prepared the cult ahead. He already prepared the the, the folks who would ask the question about the cult. He's already prepared it all ahead, all in advance. So what do I have to fear if I know God's ahead of me? Nothing is the answer. And that each step of faith becomes easier and easier and easier. Why? Because I've checked that one off and this one off and this one five years ago and this one 20 years ago. And sooner or later, I've got a track record of faith that I can look back on and say, man, look at what God's done. 
And I fear nothing. I, I fear no, nothing that he would lead me to do. I'm intimidated by nothing he puts in my path. Why? Because here's what he's done. And I can point to every bit of it. Where does that start? It starts with one small step or two or three or this relationship or this conversation. I would just encourage you to start. Put faith works. It needs to work. <laughs> you don't need just to, to set on autopilot. It, just, it doesn't need to just show up here once a week. It needs to work. It needs to be evident through the week. It needs to be evident in our, in our families, in our homes, in, our, in the places we work. It needs to permeate the cracks of our life. I use, the, I use that phrase, the cracks of our life, a lot. And it needs to come out. It needs to ooze out of us, out of who we are. Not that it's conjured up or somehow it's, it's, it's falsely laid out there. But it needs to be who we are. It needs to be, be lived in that way. Well, I'd encourage you to, to start praying about that and about what that would look like for you, how, how God would start to speak through your prayer life to do some incredible things in your faith journey that you never experienced before. Why? Because the enemy had me bound. Bound to think I couldn't, I couldn't get there. I wasn't worthy to get there. Uh, I, I would not be effective when I got there. And every bit of that's a lie straight out of hell. Start to move on the things God gives you, and he'll open up greater doors for you. I promise that to be true. Why do I know that? His word says so. And that's good enough. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Crosspoint Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.